0: Um, I normally just jump into a reading. I don't always read from the book I'm uh, launching at any given year. But um, this year, Drawn and Quarterly insisted that I actually talk about the book that they're trying to sell. Um, Thankfully, that was a very nice description of what it's about. Um, I initially serialized it as a a daily strip uh, over the course of, I think, either 450 or 470 days. Uh, I had been wanting to work on a daily strip for a very long time. Um, daily strips informed um, a lot of like my early reading experiences and drawing experiences. Uh, my parents had collections of Peanuts, uh, Farside, and Calvin and Hobbes lying around, but um, Bloom County by Berkeley Breathed in particular was a really big influence on me growing up. Um, it's funny to think about how it was an influence on me because it had really topical 80s jokes that like I didn't understand it all as a kid because I didn't know who like Oliver North was or like Kitty Dukakis was. Um, but I think I really appreciated, um, it like taught me the rhythm of comics and the rhythm of humor and I think I liked that a lot. Um, I obviously uh, really enjoyed like the human animal dynamics and um, I think for this work in particular, what I liked about Bloom County was how tethered it was to a very... Um, a very rich, specific place and community. And I wanted uh, Richards Valley to feel as tethered to Toronto, which is the city I live in and the city it takes place in. Um, I I used sort of a photo collage style um, for all of the the work in it. Uh, So a mixture of photographs I took around the city and um, also scanned photocopy textures so that real places and real events and real buildings were referenced um, i also weaved in a lot of both uh, real and imagined bits of toronto history um, so things that i i hope would keep the book accessible to anyone reading that uh, but if you lived in toronto you might be able to like recognize key um, key moments or key figures one of the groups that influenced um one of the storylines. uh is a psychoanalytic group called Therafields that was operi- uh, operated in Toronto in the 70s. Um, they are controversially characterized as a cult. Former members have mixed reviews of uh, their time in it, but uh, it was uh, a group that um, was very intense about, um, I guess, psychoanalysis, so they all had uh, these group homes together. They had about uh, 23 houses in downtown Toronto that they all lived uh, lived in together, and it got to a point where the leader would occasionally rearrange uh, families based on who she thought would uh, do a better job raising a child or being a husband or being a wife. Um, The woman with the bouffant haircut is a very enigmatic and eccentric leader, um, and her younger lover, Visvalda Supenieks, uh, was a graphic designer who designed the... uh, their mimeographed newsletters. Uh, a lot of poets and artists in Toronto um, were were members of this group. And it ended in financial disrepair and scandal. Uh, Visvaldis um, drove a convertible off a cliff while, while he was inside it. Um, and then one of the other things I wanted to evoke was the spirit of Rochdale College. Rochdale was a... Uh, experimental hippie school that um, used to be in downtown Toronto. It was a big apartment building that was uh, bought out by a bunch of thinkers and academics and hippies and drug dealers and artists um, to make a free college. They printed um, kind of cool, uh, offset, really beautifully designed fake degrees that uh, people could buy to help subsidize their rent and then try to get jobs that they might not technically be qualified for. Um, It was a really noble experiment that has a lot of lasting legacies in the city. Um, Judith Merrill, the author, uh, was uh, their librarian. Um, The publisher Coach House uh, printed and ran the offset press there. Um, There's a a sexual health clinic that um, uh, has been historic in Toronto, the Hassle-Free Clinic that uh, initially started as a Rochdale project. But one of the only visual traces of the school left is um, this odd sort of statue, which is in downtown Toronto, and most people pass by without really understanding what it is, because it's kind of a weird statue. Um, but it's the unknown student statue, and I, I wanted to evoke that with um, a, a raccoon sculpture that kind of um, was like my little tribute to it. Oh, no, because I'm going to... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, This this sort of photo collage style, I also wanted to evoke a a very specific type of um, mess in Toronto. I think uh, people talk about cities being dirty or grimy, um, but I didn't want this to depict a city just as being generically dirty or generically grimy because I don't think that really captures... What I recognize as being Toronto. I think Toronto is cluttered in a very um, specific way and it has a lot of debris and I wanted to uh, have all that debris there. There is like an inordinate amount of um, discarded construction material in the city, uh, so much so that we have like um, islands built up out of discarded bricks and construction material. and our storefronts are, are noisy in a very specific way. Um, so those are just other things that I wanted to, to tether the city in. Oh, and also I, I paid tribute to, there was like an electronic surplus store that had a famous gorilla mascot um, that was outside. And I wanted to pay tribute to the gorilla mascot by having, having my own kind of like mascot surplus store uh, person in the, in the book. Um, so yeah, that's the book. It's available for sale, but it's also still free online if you want to sample it or something, or just read it, because I won't, I won't know that you did that. Um, I'm not going to read from this book, just because it requires me to do, like, voices, which I'd be really bad at. I have a very monotonous voice, so you wouldn't enjoy that. Um, but instead, I do have a few other short stories that I'll, I'll read Um, This one is called Recommended for You. It's my favorite TV show. Well, second favorite. It's called Day of Reckoning, The Sinning Hours, The Series. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's about this not-so-distant future where for 24 hours out of every year, there's this thing called the Day of Reckoning where there are no laws There's no such thing as crime for the day. Everything is legal. Everyone can do or say whatever they want and no one will get in trouble. So for 24 hours, all this super wild stuff is happening. People are letting their dogs shit wherever, sidewalks, roads, coffee shops, and they aren't picking it up with a doggy bag. They can if they want to, but they don't have to. You're allowed to delete all your unread emails from your inbox and no one gets mad at you? You're allowed to search for whatever you want on the internet, you can look up anything. You're allowed to talk politics at the dinner table, or not talk politics at the dinner table. You're allowed to eat food even if you're allergic to it. (laughs) But won't you get sick? No, that's the thing, you won't get sick because there are no rules. You're allowed to let the battery of your phone die out. You're allowed to do that thing where you lick your thumb and index finger and put out a candle with them. (laughs) When you meet someone new, you're allowed to not introduce yourself or not shake hands. You're allowed to get your ass kicked. You're allowed to wear a beautiful outfit. You're allowed to hit someone with your car You're allowed to sing a song to your friends that you wrote. You're allowed to take a cooking class. You're allowed to show compassion to your son or daughter when they make a mistake. You're allowed to make eye contact with strangers. I guess I should start watching it. Well, it takes a little while to get good. The first season mostly follows the origin of the holiday. It starts out with this family in a small town, a mom and a dad and their son Jason. The mom is sick. The whole family knows she only has a few years to live. She's a goner. The, only, the one thing the dad would like to do before she dies is finally admit to his wife that he's fallen out of love with her. It's not like he hates her or has fallen in love with someone else. He wants to keep taking care of her. He can't imagine life without her. He just knows that deep down, despite all that, he simply doesn't love her anymore. That spark, it's long gone, been gone for years. And this is eating away at him. He feels like he's lying to her every time he clasps her withered hand or brushes away stray strands of hair from her face. Every action, every touch, every whispered phrase, every quiet moment feels like they're just compounding this lie. The guilt is simply unbearable. It's infecting every facet of his life but he can't be honest with her because she only has a few years left. It'd be unimaginable to say something like that to someone on their deathbed. It'd just be so far against, against the conventions of polite society. And so the mom dies without ever hearing the truth. Jason, the boy, ends up with this terrible childhood. He thinks, I hate these stupid rules. I hate these stupid conventions. One day I'm gonna get rid of all these rules and codes and laws and taboos and then people can be totally honest with each other and with themselves. This becomes the seed for the no laws for 24 hours thing. Long story short, Jason grows up and becomes governor of his state. He introduces a Day of Reckoning pilot project in Wisconsin. Eventually the project goes on to take the world stage after a lengthy political power struggle legislation passes that officially declares the Day of Reckoning a national holiday in America. Season one ends with the first nationwide day of reckoning. When it finally arrives, Jason takes his now elderly father to visit his mom's grave. The dad breaks down and finally tells her everything he couldn't say to her in life. Wow. (laughs) Suddenly, this husband of a congresswoman Jason had an affair with earlier in the season, shows up at the cemetery, he tries to shoot Jason, misses and kills Jason's dad instead. And the shooter gets away with it because all crime is legal? Exactly. Suddenly, Jason is like, oh, man, what have I done? Maybe the day of reckoning kind of sucks. The show zooms out to the rest of the country to look at how the day is playing out for other people and reveals that Jason is right. It does kind of suck. It's mostly just, like, dudes robbing dudes, dudes stabbing dudes, dudes shooting dudes. That ends up being all of season two. Violent crime, murder, that's it. The show really drags for a while. At the end of it all, everyone in the country takes a moment to themselves and thinks, geez, okay, that was nuts. I don't know if I feel great about all the horrible things I just did, like it felt good in the moment. But now we're super tired from staying up so late, and we have all these corpses and pieces of broken glass to clean up. Everyone feels real crummy about how they handle themselves, like maybe it was a Wasted opportunity. The nation collectively decides that when the next Day of Reckoning comes around, they'll try to be way more chill about things. Day of Reckoning, Season 3. Everyone is all about being super nice to each other. A team of hackers wipes everyone's criminal records. People start spontaneously blurting out secrets to each other. Long-held crushes, that sort of thing. Folks are getting laid. Husbands and wives start going to couples counseling. There's this one episode that's all about a free 24-hour long marathon welding class this welder decides to hold in a park and all these welding noobs get super into welding after attending. <laughs> the woman who played Wavekiller Z as a cameo is the welder. She really gets to show her range. People start petting each other's animals. Bullies are allowed to be nice to pipsqueaks. The pipsqueaks and bullies start new experimental extracurricular clubs together and end up inventing a a new sport called non-competitive (laughs) blubble. It goes on like that for three seasons. Each season covers another year's day of reckoning. Anyway, season six comes around, which is the final one. A lot of people stop watching after Jason's character goes off the rails a little bit. Jason becomes president, but later joins in a narco-primitivist terrorist cell and helps hijack an airplane, which costs him his reelection campaign. He moves back to his childhood home and opens a diner. But Jason's left a big impact on Washington. A small group of congressmen form a secret cult that worships the day of reckoning. So much so that they think it should be more than 24 hours. On the next day of reckoning, they break into the National Archives and rewrite the Constitution. The new Constitution states that American law need only be obeyed for one day a year. For the other 364 days, all crime is legal. When America wakes up, the next morning is already a done deal. The Constitution's changed and everyone just has to adjust. So now, every day is a day of reckoning. Basically. Except for one day when it isn't. Yes, and this new day where you do nothing but obey rules for 24 hours is called the day of temperance. When someone tells you to stop running in the hallway, you have to stop. If someone asks you a question, you have to answer that question. You have to provide your landlord with two written references plus first and last month's rent. You have to lie to your students about their career prospects. (laughs) You have to watch a cop break your friend's arms. You have to answer three security questions or you'll be temporarily locked out of your account. You have to turn off all the lights, duck behind the curtains, and not make any sudden movements. But it's only one day? Right. Thank God. Uh, That's the end of that story. Um, This one's called Album. I love this old photo of my mom and her friends. Or this one, from the day I was born. Or at our old house. I love this photo of her on vacation. I love what she's done with her hair in 1985. Here's a dress she splurged for in 1993. Here's her hospital bed 12 years from now. Here's a photo of her yelling at a nurse 11 years from now. Here's my mom at her 7th grade school play. This is what she looked like while I was losing my virginity on a road trip to Montreal to a college student five years older than me, which she would never learn about. Here's a photo of my mom when she graduated. This is my mom getting the news about my dad. Here's my mom 13 years from now. These are the jeans she wore on her first date with my dad. Here's a photo of her welcoming me back home in five years. Here's my mom 300 years from now. Kids spray paint the statue. This is a photo of the last time she kicked me out of the house. This is a photo of her cheating on my dad. This is a photo of her 5,000 years from now. This is a photo of her 650 years from now. Here's my mom while I stole from her wallet 16 years ago. This is a photo of my mom hitting her classmates so hard two teeth fell out. This is a photo of my mom volunteering at a community garden. This is my mom forgiving me for all the trouble I'd caused. This is my mom looking over our dying solar system. This is a photo of me and my mom. This is a photo of us 500 years ago. Uh, I only have one story left. This one I have to kneel for, because the text is really small and hard to read if I'm standing up. And other people might have the text prepared on a separate slide, or like that I could look at on my phone. Not me. (laughs) Dimly lit and in perpetual crisis, the same way we end every year, we've amassed quite the collection here in this basement apartment. Fading beauties, also rans, pickled twinks, small business owners, neurotics, former roommates, fronts of house, hedgers, stutterers, wafflers, wimps. I look awful in this photo. We rented a karaoke machine. There was a snowstorm outside. We all sang our favorite songs. There was a lot of food going around. I ate way too much, which I'm told is actually a radical act of self-care. This act is apparently radically political or perhaps radically apolitical. I'm extremely gassy either way, which is a side effect of being committed so fully to self-care. This commitment also means I'm unavailable on weekends or Tuesday afternoons. Jerome was seeing Alwyn and Alwyn was seeing all sorts of people, so when they sang a duet together, Jerome sang it sincerely and Alwyn sang it in like a joke voice. Jerome was upset. Phyllis sang verses from the Bible. Rocco sang from one of his own songs, which was sort of a douchey move. Lois chose a very old, very famous poem. I didn't recognize it. A celebrity dropped by and sang poorly. A stranger dropped by and sang well. The room got awfully full. Maybe it was the snowstorm. I didn't recognize half the people coming in and I pretended not to recognize the rest. We all talked over each other and sang over each other. Most of us were gassy. At that point, there was no room to put your bag down or take a load off or stretch your anythings. You couldn't have a quiet word with someone. You couldn't sing something sincerely. You couldn't plot a mutiny. You couldn't invite someone to lunch the next day without inviting everyone to lunch the next day. Everyone could see that Jerome had stuff in his teeth. Everyone sang along to the closing number. Everyone knew the words. When the crowd cleared out and the snow off everyone's boots had melted, we realized that at some point, in the night, our bodies had crushed and killed Barnaby. Barnaby was the littlest among us. He died the way he lived, misremembering the lyrics to a whole song. <laughs> we held a service for him, just a few of us stragglers, the ones tasked with cleaning up. It ended the night. We said a few things. Everyone knew the words. We woke up healthy. We woke up in agony. No one overdid it since none of us overdo it anymore. There was less of us than there was last year. Someday we'll wonder how we ever managed to pack a room. None of us had hangovers. We've cut back on our drinking. Um, That's it for my stories. (laughs) But I can answer questions if there are any. um it, so much of it was like stuff that had been happening for a little while um but there were a number of things that were going on while I was working on the strip um including uh a really bad mayoral election in toronto <laughs> uh um and or a sorry a really bad mayoral election but also a uh, really horrible provincial election um and uh, the other thing that was happening while I was working on it was the announcement of um, Sidewalk Labs moving into the city, uh, Toronto's Front, which is Google's horrible smart city idea. Um, so things like that were, were things I was uh, reacting to at least a little bit in real time. Um, but this stuff has felt sort of like a, so many of the, the things about um, living in a city that are useful and precious have been under assault for so long um, that that stuff has felt like just a, a constant, a constant assault, I guess, so, yeah. No pressure if there's no qu- Oh. Hey. <laughs> Uh, I have some short stories that I do every month. I do a Patreon subscription service, um, and I'm working on a graphic novel that um, I probably can't talk about. But also, it's like, I can't, ex- nothing happens in my books anyway, so just saying, what but I'm working on a comic that'll be out in like 2021 or something. Yeah, I think a lot of those choices are intuitive. Some of like the deadpan delivery of of uh, like the narrative voice in my comics, I think comes from. I used to. I, I still enjoy a lot of nature documentaries, and I really like the way they explain a world like that. Um, and that's like a format I've used in a lot of comics, and I think it's carried over just in other things I've written. Um, yeah, so something like that. But a, lo- a lot of the choices like that are just the way it works out. Um, I keep myself on a pretty strict schedule. Um, it's it's very helpful for me to do that. Um, but it's not like anything too unique. Like, I try to do as much as I uh, the paid work um, I can finish in the morning. Like, I tend to do commercial work, paid work in the morning, and then try to do personal work, which are my comics, um, in the afternoon and evening. But... Um, Yeah, there's nothing much. Yeah, no, not as much anymore. Like I'll still pull all nighters um, some nights of the week. Uh, I don't sleep a ton, so that is helpful, and I I wake up very early in the morning, um, just because I I wake up early in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I I, when I was starting out, I used to be like very unhealthy about like staying up for whatever seventy two hours to draw something, and, and thankfully I'm. Um, I don't have to do that anymore because there's no I'm not gonna I'm not thankfully not in danger of being evicted (laughs) as much as frequently as I was when I was starting out so I don't need to pull crazy all-nighters all the time Um, and I uh, yeah I think I just sort of stick to like a pretty like a rigorous and rigid but like still I think normal-ish schedule now. Um, I don't spend a ton of time editing. Actually, that hasn't been true lately. I've finished a lot of projects that I've cleaned up a bunch. But um, uh, I throw out a lot of pages, a lot of finished pages, and that's kind of what my editing process looks like. Um, I have a lot of, like, false starts. I'd say about a third of what I draw in any given year ends up um, being finished pages that stay unpublished. All right, cool. No no, no pressure, I can sign books. <laughs> I don't want to put y'all on the spot. Uh, thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks to the store for having me. So we're just gonna set up a signing table right up here and we'll clear away the chairs. Uh, if you want to purchase the book, it's at the front. And uh, if you want to line up maybe along the bookcase, that would be great. Thank you, thanks for coming.